We kicked off this series last week with what I think is a pretty stunning statistic that 60% of all the people asked, do you want to know the Bible better? 60% of them don't even go to church. So there's a lot of folks out there who are more impressed with the Bible than they are with the church. And, And maybe that's you. Maybe a friend brought you and you're on one of our campuses and you're going, I don't know about church, but the, the Bible, I'm kind of interested in what it has to say to my life. Or maybe you're watching online or on demand or on a treadmill and you just think, I, I believe that if I knew the Bible better, my life would be better. Well, studies have shown that to be absolutely true. So the challenge for us is to take this big book and make it a little bit smaller, a little bit more manageable, and take an old book and make it a little bit more relevant. So we started last week with this interesting exercise where we took the whole Bible and put it on 10 fingers. Now, I don't know if you wrote on your hands or not, but there was one young lady who did, like wrote the symbols on each of her fingers, and she was so excited after service to show me, this is what it looked like. First of all, her penmanship is extraordinary. But it's such a good summary of the whole Bible because, as you know, it begins with Adam, a little smiley faces for Eden because we were happy there, but Adam and Eve, they screwed it up, like by chapter three. And because of our sin, we're kicked out of the garden. Because of our sin, we actually wound up in slavery, which is why we have a little chain on your finger there, the pointer finger of your left hand. And the the pillar person of the Old Testament for that is Abraham. Good man, father of the faithful. But his family was screwed up. He was screwed up. Can anyone give a witness? Like, this is us. Because of our own sin, we find ourselves in bondage, and we need a savior. Well, the savior God sent was this cat named Moses that led them through the sea, part of the Red Sea, but ultimately the best thing Moses did was to give them 10 commandments from God. And if you follow the 10 commandments, you will live a better life than people who don't. In fact, all over the world, we find that to be true. But what do we do? We don't just want God to be our leader. We want a human king to be our leader. Someone to fight for us and someone to defend us. And God says, you know, that's a really bad idea because even the best kings are gonna be messed up. Well, that was true. David was the best of all the kings. Oy vey. If that's the best we got, we need a new king, right? So David is this man after God's own heart, but his behavior doesn't always follow it. So then we go to Elijah. When the kings go bad, and you might know maybe one or two political leaders that don't follow God, but when they go bad, we need a prophet in the midst to call out the truth of God, and that's what Elijah did. Throughout the Old Testament, the kings are brought to account by the prophets, but ultimately to no avail, because the 10 northern tribes of Israel were taken away into captivity through Assyria. The two southern tribes of Israel were taken into captivity through Babylon. So we finished the Old Testament actually with a broken heart. And for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, we longed for a solution. And that solution came in the person of Jesus. On your right hand, we ask you to put a cross representing Jesus, who is our Savior. 
And he didn't just die for us, but he rose from the dead. So we have an empty tomb there or an Easter egg, whatever you like. And, and then after the empty tomb, we have a church. And the rules of the church are not commandments. They're just not 10 commandments, just two. Love God, love people. And we don't keep that message to ourselves, but we're commanded to go into all the world. So there's an arrow sending us out to all the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that will take us back to a perfect place in eternity. <laughs> I think it's funny that the, that the infinity symbol for eternity actually represents revelation. It's fuzzy in this picture because, well, revelation, well, you get it. It's a little fuzzy. This is the story of all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And if you would like to put five pillar people on your right hand to match your left, I'm gonna give you those people. It was, it was funny, uh, there was a, a woman last week who she didn't have a pen to write with, so she went and got emojis to represent all these. And I thought, well, that's clever. I wish I'd have thought of that. So you can plagiarize, it's free of charge. This pinky on your right hand, the name that you put there is Jesus. That makes sense because he's the one that died on the cross. The resurrection is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the name you put on the, the ring finger of your right hand is the Holy Spirit. Now the tallest finger, this kind of represents the church. We live by two rules, love God, love people. The one who founded the church by the power of Jesus was a man by the name of Peter. Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. So I would write Peter on the tallest finger, middle finger, and then the one who, the sending finger, has gotta be Paul, the apostle Paul. He went all around the Mediterranean world preaching the gospel, and Revelation was written by John, so the thumb of your right hand would be John, and now you have the 10 main movements of the Bible and the 10 main characters of the Bible right there on your hands. Pretty simple, right? Well, when you start digging into this big old book, it gets a little complicated from there. Now, some of you are gonna go, I, you know, I just, I'm not comfortable because I don't know much of the Bible, and if I go to a Bible study, I'll just look stupid. Well, here's the deal. All of us, in light of God's wisdom, are just mere fools. None of us are experts when we come to the Bible. So what I'm telling you is we're all level on the ground of the Bible. Some may know a little bit more than others, but compared to God, we know nothing. In fact, the more I study the Bible, the more I realize that I don't know what's in the Bible. I've been studying for decades. But the beauty of this book is kind of like a magic pool where any infant can jump in the pool and not drown, but no scholar could ever plumb the depths. I promise you, I don't feel like I know any more of the Bible than you do in relation to God's wisdom. We're all just pedestrians. Does that bother me? Not at all. Here's why. Because I've gamified learning the Bible. And every time I learn something new, it's like this great game of hide-and-go-seek with God. I mean, even this last week, I discovered something and I couldn't stay in my office. I had to run around the building. Say, Did you, have you ever seen this? This is amazing. I'm an 11-year-old when it comes to reading the Bible. Actually, I'm an 11-year-old in a lot of things, but that's none of your business. <clears throat> what I want to say to you before we get in the right hand of the New Testament, I, I want to say two things. And this is, the, I, you need to hear this. Nobody should be intimidated because all of us are finding God. It's not about how much you know. It's about the person that you meet in the pages of God's word. And as you meet Jesus there, he will take you to the Father, and that is the goal. 
And it doesn't happen by more knowledge. It happens by more obedience. And if this is your very first time at CCV, welcome. Or if you're watching online or on a treadmill, welcome. Glad you're here. But please know this. You, your life will not get better by knowing more of the Bible. Your life will get better by obeying what God's saying to you through his word. So honestly, I would rather you know three verses and apply two of them to your life than know 10,000 verses and only apply one of them to your life. With that in mind, let's take a look at the whole Old Testament and New Testament together. I want to remind you that for those of you who are interested, every week of the series, we're going to provide online an extended cut video. It's not the message, it goes beyond the message that will coach you in how to know. We're not telling you what the Bible says, because that's what you need to know. But we're telling you how to know what you need to know by reading the Bible on your own. So if you want those extended cut videos, it's pretty simple. You can just look on the app or go to YouTube and type in CCB Online and you'll see a lot more material of how to actually put into practice the reading and studying of God's Word. But here, here is the Bible in all its glory, 66 books. And we've arranged them by these categories of genre, history, poetry, prophecy, gospels, epistles. Now, the Old Testament, you see, it begins with a bunch of historical books. How many historical books are in the New Testament? Uh, there's actually just one, Acts. And then the Old Testament ends with a bunch of prophetic books, uh, all these major prophets, minor prophets. How many prophetic books does the New Testament have? Uh, just one at the very end, Revelation. There are five books of poetry in the Old Testament, none in the New Testament. Now, there's some poetry interspersed throughout the New Testament, but no whole books of poetry. But what the New Testament has that the Old Testament doesn't is these two genres. One is these epistles. Well, that's a fancy word for letters, so just, we'll just call them letters. All of these are letters that Paul wrote to churches these over here are letters that Paul wrote to pastors, and these are letters that different people other than Paul wrote to their uh, congregations. The one genre that is not in the Old Testament, because it wasn't even a genre until the New Testament, is this right here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The genre is gospel. A gospel is a kind of, it's kind of like a biography, but Biographies tell you the whole life of someone, the Gospels don't. They focus primarily on the end of Jesus' life. And it's kind of like reading a biography of JFK. You know how it ends. So everything you read leads up to the ending. That's the way it is with the Gospels as well. But here's what's so interesting about Gospels. The word itself simply means good news. And it wasn't a word that was a religious word until the New Testament. Prior to that, it was a political word. It was a good news of some kind of governmental achievement. So for example, you think of these town criers, hear ye, hear ye kind of thing. They would go, hear ye, hear ye. The emperor had a child, and so his line lives on. Oh, yay. Or hear ye, hear ye. The general won the war, so he's coming back with a bunch of slaves. Oh, yay. That's what the good news was all about until one young man, as near as I can tell, 
the first person to ever use gospel for the story of Jesus was a guy named Mark. You're welcome. <laughs> it wasn't me, it was this young kid named Mark in the New Testament. He actually, like me, had a couple of ministry failures early on. And so he's kind of got his tail between his legs and he finds himself in Rome way far away from his hometown to Jerusalem and he's writing down all the preaching of the apostle Peter. And he's telling all the stories leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection and he finally gets it to like a book length and he begins his book in Rome with this statement, the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. All the other good news from town criers to pillars to placards to memorials was all about emperors and generals, emperors and generals. And now Mark is saying, this guy you crucified, he's the good news. Is Mark replacing the emperor? Oh no. No, that would be a step down for Jesus. He is not replacing the emperor. He is above every emperor. He is king of kings and lord of lords. So Mark wants to make that clear. He uses a word, a title, political title, that's very Jewish, Messiah. So all the Jews say, oh, Messiah. Well, we know what that is. That's that's the king of Israel. He uses another term that says son of God. And and all the Romans say, well, we know what the son of God is. That's, That's the emperor. He is above either and both and all of those. And one thing that Mark does is I think is brilliant. The other heralds of good news primarily used plural good newses, even if the good news was singular. Like the emperor had a child, good newses. They go, good news is there's just one kid, right? Yeah, but just one kid, but there's always gonna be another kid. There's always gonna be another emperor. Good news is the general won the war. How many wars did he win? Just one. Why is it good news? Because there's always going to be another war. There's always going to be another general. Some of you right now need to singularize your good news. Mark says there's only one good news you need. It's not about war. It's not about emperor. It's about the king of kings and lord of lords. And you're thinking, I need some good news around my marriage. I need some good news around my kids. They're just, whoo uh, I need some good news at, at work. I need some good news financially. You need good news? No, you need good news. Because when you give your life to Jesus, he is the Lord over all of it that can bring order to all of your chaos. So you might be asking, okay, if there's just one good news, then why is there four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why is there four? It's not that it's a different message, it's that it's a different perspective. And each of these gospel writers writes to their own church, to their own culture in a way that they can hear with their heart language. So for example, Matthew is very Jewish. And when you read the gospel according to Matthew, he will give you more Old Testament quotes than all the other gospels. Which is interesting because you remember what Matthew did for a living? He's a tax collector. And and he was not invited to the synagogue service. So while other people are studying God's word on Sabbath in the synagogue, he's studying God's word at night by candlelight all alone. And some of you, like you get that. Because you're here right now and people are going, I can't believe that they're interested in 
the Bible. They're interested in church. Yeah, you've been interested for a long time, but because of your lifestyle, nobody would have guessed it. Well, welcome home. Matthew is your guy. Mark, on the other hand, he is, well, he's kind of an American. I know it says that he's, he's Roman, but Rome Americans, they're the same thing. They, they think the same. They're always in a hurry. They're always deliberate. They always have a to-do list. <laughs> One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately Jesus did that. Um, uh, can I get a witness? That's me. Luke, on the other hand, as some of you need Luke, because he's that historian for skeptics. He goes into detail about the life of Jesus, and he's Greek. He's not Jewish, he's not Roman, he's Greek, which means he's an outsider. And some of you feel like an outsider. This dude was an excellent historian. He's also a physician, he's also a linguist. The dude is drop dead brilliant. And he writes two books, Luke and the book of Acts. Those were both his. You know, you actually read more words from Luke than from any other writer of the New Testament, including Paul. And if you need a writer who is gonna spell out in detail logical, historical, methodical, Luke is your guy. And then there's John. I don't know if he's for philosophers or artists, but John, he has this simple vocabulary. Like seriously, it is a six-grade-level six vocabulary. And his stories are easy to follow, but man, they will suck you in because though they're simple, they're not simplistic, and you just dive deeper and deeper and deeper in John. Each of the four Gospels give a different perspective about Jesus, but all of them are telling you real details. And I know sometimes when people approach the Bible, it has this once upon a time feel. I'm gonna read a passage, it's from Luke, you tell me if this feels to you like a fairy tale once upon a time. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ichiria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That ain't no once upon a time. Like, you don't give that many historical people, historical places, historical times unless you expect somebody to fact check you. And people did. And here's why I think that's so important of all the gospels. When Jesus becomes real to you, you can live for the future and not from your past. I've seen this a thousand times where people begin to investigate Jesus. Is it real? Is it true? And they start digging into the Bible and all of a sudden they realize this is real. And it happened again just last month. I joined a group of guys for a hundred mile hike through Israel. And one of the guys who started the hike with us was a pre-Christian. And he didn't finish the hike that way. I want you to hear Stephen's story. Prior to being invited to the trip, I, I struggled with my faith a lot. Um, I would go to Bible study, um, but I'd go, just go to go through the motions. I would attend church, but I was just showing up to go through the motions. I, 
I had a lot of questions and I really didn't know how to process all, all of the questions that I had. And, you know, I, like I said, I attended church, but I think for the wrong reasons. Where I was in my faith is I knew that we had a creator. I just didn't know who. I didn't know if it was God, if it was an alien. I didn't know somebody created us. We just didn't form from some amoeba. And I just had questions on who that was. So now it's, now it's happening. I'm going on this trip. So <laughs> as my wife would say, I speed dated Jesus. <laughs> Watching The Chosen, reading, like just, she said, wow, I've never seen you this dive into this. I said, well, I'm going to Israel. I need to know what I'm looking at, what I'm walking on, what I'm talking about. So I speed dated Jesus, and then we went on the trip. Along the journey, I was still trying to figure out, and, and again, one of the reasons I said yes to this trip was, I was either gonna prove that I'm right, or I was gonna find out that everyone else is right. By day five, we were in Capernaum. After seeing you know, so many places where he performed miracles and so many places where things have happened, and pretty soon you just, I threw my arms up on day five and I just said, this is real. This happened, all of this happened. All of the things that I've been doubting my entire 56 year life, I'm finding out are real. <laughs> and so imagine believing something for your entire life and then five days into a trip, everything you've ever thought is turned upside down because you've been presented with so many facts and so much history that I just threw my arms up and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was a very emotional day for me because not only did we probably walk 17 miles of backpacks that day, but I, I finally realized Jesus was real. To see the Sea of Galilee, where the, you know the the fish miracle, uh, where he changed water into wine. To see Jesus's tomb, to see, you know, the the rock that they laid his body on after they pulled him off the cross. I mean, it is moving. It is powerful, and you can't. You cannot experience what I experienced and come back and not have any other feeling than Jesus is 100% real. Now, what do I do this and how do I live my life going forward? Because life does not look the same once you know that fact. Getting to go on that trip, I felt like, I felt like I was plucked from the very back of the line, picked up and moved to the front of the line. I, I felt like I, I, I still don't know how I, it happened, why it happened, but I know that everything happens for a reason and now I'm just, I need to share what I saw and share what I experienced. And, and you should see the faces of some of the people that I talked to because they never in a million years would have expected this from me. I was not that guy. <laughs> so the when we decided to get baptized, I wanted it to be special because you know, the 12 men that went on the trip, um, they had a huge part in my journey, a huge part of my journey, and I wanted them to be there. Again, like I said, I'm 56, and, and I've not been a perfect person. Not a terrible person, but I've not been a perfect person. And I had carried a lot of guilt around with me for either, you know, business or personal or not being the greatest husband at times, not being the greatest father or what, whatever it was. and. I just realized that if Jesus can forgive me, I need to forgive me. And so when I came up, 
it was like I was brand new. I mean, this is gonna sound crazy, especially coming from me, but I felt the weight of the world off my shoulders because I no longer carried around any guilt. I gave myself a break. I cut myself the slack and I started over. I, I can't in one month undo what 50 plus years it did, but I'm working on it every day. And how am I doing that? I'm, I'm correcting some behaviors, trying to be a better person, be a better husband, better father, better friend, and lead by example. I want everyone to know that if you have any questions whether or not God is real or these things happen that the Bible talks about, I'm telling you I saw the Bible come to life and I have zero questions that Jesus is real. Zero. Zero. And that's because I saw it with my own eyes and I walked the walk. It was amazing. Stephen, I, I know that you're, uh, I know that you're listening, so I want to talk just to you for a minute. When you start a new life like this, a new journey, some of the old habits, they, they creep back in. And you're going to have some failures, two steps forward, three steps back at times. But I want to tell you that that doesn't matter because the sacrifice of Jesus will cover all of your past sins and all your future sins. Here's what really matters, and you and I talked about this, is being a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I know the church turns a lot of people off for a lot of different reasons, but here's why Jesus loves the church and died for the church. He doesn't just want to be your savior. He wants to be the king of kings, and he can't do that without a nation, and that's what we call the church. So if you actually look at the New Testament documents, the, after the Gospels, the very next book is the book of Acts. It's a 30-year history from about 30 to 60 AD, all about the founding of the church. Now, what's interesting about Acts is it's not the same genre as Gospels. You know what genre Acts is? Acts. Like, we don't have that genre on Netflix, but they would have back in the first century. There were lots of different books called the Acts of their hero, the Acts of Dionysius, the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Acts was a genre of your hero. So who is the hero of Acts? Some will say, well, it's the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, no, it's not. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. At best, it's the, some of the Acts of two of the Apostles, Peter and Paul. So who is the hero of this book? Luke tells you in the very first verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So Jesus is the hero of Luke. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The church is founded by Peter, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter and Paul, yeah, they're key players in the church, but only because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And Luke does something, this is so clever, he keeps comparing Peter and Paul 12 times. For example, in chapter 3, Peter heals a lame man. Chapter 14, Paul heals a lame man. In chapter uh, 9, Peter raises someone from the dead. Chapter 20, Paul raises someone from the dead. Both confronted a sorcerer. Both were beaten for preaching the gospel. Both were miraculously released from prison. So you have this Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul. But if you've read volume one, you know it's actually Jesus, 
Peter Paul. Jesus Peter Paul. Jesus Peter Paul. And you think, well, that's great for them, but they're apostles. I can't really do that. Oh, no, that is the intention. And I want to show you how. You go clear to the end of the book of Acts. This is the worst ending for the best book. It's a terrible ending. And before you stone me, let me just read it to you because Paul has been in prison for two years. He appeals to Caesar, and now he's been in prison for another two years. He's in Rome waiting for his chance to preach to Nero, who was a horrible emperor. He was a terrible, and I want to know, like, what did he say to Nero of all people? I want to know, was he released after two years? Yeah, legally, he had to have been. But then where did he go after two years? Here's what the ending of the book tells us about all of that. For two whole years, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, that's cool, but like, did he ever talk to Nero? I want to know. And we don't. Did he ever get released? We don't know. Where did he go next? We don't know. You know why? This is the terrible ending of Acts because it's not the ending of Acts. This is the ending of Acts 28. But there's an Acts 29. You go, I've never read Acts 29. That's because you're writing it right now. And when Jesus returns and the Lamb's book of life is opened, there will be all of these verses. This is the only book of the New Testament that you could add something to. You'll have a verse. You'll have a verse. You'll have a verse. What story will you tell about Jesus? You go, I, I don't know that I have like anything to offer. Well, this, this is what Jesus says to you. If you think you have nothing to offer, here's what Jesus says about you. And he said it the night before he died. This is important. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And you go, I do believe in Jesus, but I don't know that I can do greater works than Jesus. Actually, you can. Statistically, you can speak to more people than he did. You can reach other ethnicities that he didn't. You can go to places that he couldn't. Yes, you can do. We, as the church, can certainly do greater works than Jesus did. That's not blasphemous. That's what Jesus said was his intention. And it's not because you're the hero. It's because the Holy Spirit is the hero. So i got to ask you again. What are they going to write about you in the Lamb's Book of Life? What contribution are you going to make to the ongoing kingdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I know one guy in our church, he's a financial planner and a good one. That's his occupation. But his preoccupation is to provide clean drinking water for the people of Nepal so that in their poverty, he would have an opportunity to preach the gospel. Occupation, financial planner. Preoccupation, missions. And another friend of mine, he's a chiropractor and a good one. He's making a living by that. But that's his occupation. His preoccupation is kids' ministry at CCB, providing a male role model for kids who don't have one at home. There's a physician in our church who she, I mean, she's a big deal over at Mayo Clinic. In fact, 
Her occupation is physician. Her preoccupation is dealing with the opioid crisis, and she is one of the dominant voices in the country for providing cures and results for the opioid crisis. It's because of her love for Jesus Christ. I know a group of, of women, they're housewives. That's their occupation. But their preoccupation is to create a space in their home that is safe for all the children of their neighborhood. What is your verse going to be? Because we cannot reach this entire valley for Jesus without you contributing your voice and your verse to finishing the book of Acts. And the reason most Christians don't is not because of power. We have all the power we need for the Holy Spirit. It's not because you don't have gifts. All of us have a gift for the Holy Spirit. It's because we don't have the right priorities. Please hear this. When you see what's really going on, you can prioritize what really matters. If you look again at all of these letters in the New Testament, this is what's really going on. To Rome and Corinth and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, I know it seems old, but it is as contemporary as your diary from this morning because they're dealing with marriage issues. They're dealing with raising kids. They're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with poverty. The same things you're dealing with, they're dealing with it, with it in these letters. And, and, and it's, it's so real. Do you realize that you could actually go to Rome today and walk through the same forum where Paul walked? In fact, if you look at this picture, you see this yellow circle. Look through there, there's two doors. If you were to go through those two doors, you would go down a set of stairs into the very dungeon where the Apostle Paul wrote his final letter to Timothy. And in that last chapter, the last thing he pins in that dank dungeon before he went to execution was bring John Mark to me because he's valuable to me. I told you young John Mark had a couple of failures. His biggest one was he was on a missionary trip with Paul and he left before it was over and Paul was livid for years. But by the end of his life, he's saying, I, I want John Mark with me. He made it up, they reconciled. And, and one year I was leading a tour and one of the guys on the tour, his name is Don Fankhauser. We just called him Fank and he was a senior pastor and another guy signed up for the trip, and they didn't know that each other had signed up. But the other guy was a youth pastor that Don had fired. He was so concerned about it. He's going, what if he still hates me? I said, well, you sit in the back of the bus. I'll keep him in the front. You'll be safe. And it wound up being fine, but on the last day of the trip, we were standing right there on that platform, and I asked Don to read the last words of the Apostle Paul about John Mark. And he pulled out his phone, and the sun was so bright, he was, having, he was struggling reading it from his phone. So this youth pastor had a Bible. He opened it to 2 Timothy, and he handed it to the guy who fired him. And I got to listen to him read that. Man, that's real. I was so struck by the holiness of that moment that I said to the rest of the group, we're going to stay out here. Those two can go in by themselves. Until they're done, we won't go in. What we read in these books, in these letters, are about the lives that we're actually living. And you can go from Rome to Corinth and you can stand on the very stone that Paul stood on when he was on trial before Gallio. 
You can go to Athens and stand on Mars Hill where Paul delivered that famous address in Acts 17. You can go to Ephesus and walk through the theater where 28,000 people shouted against Paul. But the one that takes the cake for me is the little spot outside of Corinth. It's a, it's a marketplace that's 2,000 years old. And you can still read in this inscription in seven-inch letters, E. R-A-S-T-U-S, that's the name Erastus, is the guy who laid that foundation for that city. It was a public work and he put his name on it. Okay, that's cool. But you also read his name three times in the New Testament. Same guy. You can read his name in stone. You can read his name in the pages of scriptures. This is real. But is it relevant? When you're reading the letters of Apostle Paul and the others, you need to ask yourself, does it apply to me? Well, let's just test that, could we? Uh, I'm gonna read just from one chapter, Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you can know that you are forgiven. Does anybody need that word from the Lord today? The spirit you receive does not make you uh, slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, so you can be bold. Anybody need that word from the Lord? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Anybody need that word, that your present pain will pass? Or this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, so that God is at work for your good. Anybody need that word from the Lord? Or, or this, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are victorious. Anybody need that word from the Lord? That's one chapter. Let's dig into this book and listen to God speak to us so that we can find him and live our lives according to him. That leaves just one other book of the Bible to talk about, and it is Revelation. It's a doozy. So I'm gonna explain right now everything you need to know about this book. You ready? 